This morning, as we come to God's Word, we're still going through 1 Corinthians, and we come to a fairly difficult passage in 1 Corinthians to interpret, to understand. There's all kinds of different ideas of what it means. But one of our commitments at Village Bible Church is we study through the Bible. And we study through all parts of the Bible because we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. All of it. Every word and every sentence. And it's interesting, this particular passage actually is left out of the lectionary, the, the sermon um, sequence of many of the mainline denominations. Uh, as I read, mostly because they're not sure what to do with it. And um, all kinds of different opinions. But, but we come to a, a section that deals with roles of genders in the church and, and how genders associate with each other in a church setting. And that is a huge issue in culture today, isn't it? Have you been following just some of the gender issues in, in, in the news? Um, for instance, Planet Fitness. I think that's the name of it with the, the purple logo. They recently expelled a member from their health club. It's an exercise club, and, and they say a no-judgment zone, I think, is their, their slogan. <clears throat> and they expelled a lady from their, their club because she had the nerve to complain that they allowed a man to come into the women's dressing room and dress there. Because he claimed he claimed that he felt more like a woman that day. And so they, they let him go into the women's locker room, even with, with young ladies in there. And this mom complained, rightfully so, and they kicked her out, not him. And they said, you're judging him. How are you to know what, what gender he is today? And we hear more and more news stories like this. We are in a, a culture that is struggling with gender identity, what that means. It, it's part of a, a, a self-elevating self-awareness and self-fulfillment above all else that what I feel I should get to pursue. Unfortunately, in that situation... I'm afraid there could be much more nefarious means or reasons for that. But we as a church, we need to be thinking through how to answer questions of gender identity. How do we deal with roles of men, roles of women in a, in a culture that is so confused on this? And the Bible actually has a lot to say. And the church, I believe, can lead the way into showing what it can mean to have a healthy view of manhood and a healthy view, a healthy biblical view of womanhood. God has created us different. Amen? Amen. And we should relish that. We should enjoy that. There are reasons my kids go to my wife when they're hurt and not to me. They will walk right by me. I will be trying to help them. And they're like, no, Dad. I'm going to Mom. There are reasons why when there's a noise outside at night, they, they skip Susie and they come to me with a baseball bat. Here, Dad, go take care of it. No. Because they know Dad is the protector. He is the, the leader. He, is, he will take responsibility to the point of death for his family. They know Susie has been so incredibly designed by God to, to even know what to do when there's a cut. i like, oh, it'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> it's not falling off. We don't have to go to the doctor. You're good. But she can, can care for it and, and do what needs to happen. And, and these are generalizations. And I'm not saying, men, that we can't take care of cuts and that women, you can't take a bat for a burglar. Although I bet most women here would be glad to let their husbands take care of that one. 
But we are made differently and we need to stop being scared of that and start embracing that. Because as we understand how God has created us and how He has created to interact with each other, it elevates the worth of both. And you've heard me talk about that as soon as we're identical, as soon as we're the same, someone isn't needed. But God in His beauty of creation said, no, you're both needed. And we're going to talk about that today in the text. But we come to a text that has so many things from culture of 2,000 years ago that are foreign to us that it's hard for us to understand this text. And so I'd like to read it. And then we're going to, this morning, we're going to take about half of our time and just unpack what the text means, what it meant to them, what some of these symbols were for them culturally 2,000 years ago. And then we'll look at, okay, how do we take those those things and apply it today without having to be in a Jewish, Greco-Roman culture? And in, in 2015, in this culture, how do we apply those same principles? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start at verse 2. Now I commend you, and I'd like to just read through the whole passage and then we'll, we'll dig into it. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, and, and nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Confusing? Yeah, a lot of things in there, right? Uh, I was thinking maybe we'd have ushers offer head coverings for any of the ladies here so you can participate in our worship service. No, no. In fact, that actually might violate the principle that's here, ironically, because if you as a lady were to wear a, a huge hat or a head covering and no one else is, what would that do in worship? It would distract. <clears throat> it would draw attention to yourself. And so, so how do we take this text about head coverings and, and all of these other statements that are very confusing and apply it today? And so we're going to, again, like I said, take the first part of our time and just try to understand what is meant by this. What did it mean to have a head covering? What did it mean to uncover your head? What did it mean for men? What did it mean for women? And as we understand those things, I think the principles that Paul, that we can apply today that Paul is sharing will become clear. See, Paul is, is dealing with some things here in the church. And 
we know that he's gotten a letter from the Corinthians. He's, he's gotten some information of what's happening. And what looks like is happening is the ladies, some of the ladies in the Corinthian church were feeling very empowered by their new salvation. And they were taking Paul's words very, very seriously when he said there are no male or female. There is equality in Christ. And so when they would come together, they would start to remove their, their culturally mandated, I would say, head coverings as they came into the house. And, and the question was, should they or should they not? Are there still some, some identities for women and, and identities and roles for men within equality? And so Paul begins to address that. And so, just pulling apart some of the principles here, in verses 2 and 3, the first principle we see Paul bringing up is God has set up headship roles overall. God has set up headship roles overall. And especially in verse 3, Paul gives a theological foundation that is timeless, that applies to the discussion and applies to us today. He starts in verse 2 with a commendation. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And he starts with a compliment. And there's just some good social lessons there of, of complimenting people, finding something to compliment before we correct but, but Paul here is probably, probably very honestly saying, you've tried to do what I've said. Traditions are, are things that were orally passed on, that were, were given to this church. And he's saying, you, you've, you've tried to put them into practice, and many of them you have. But in the next few chapters, he's going to deal with three particular issues where they've struggled. And it's harming worship. And that's the issue of the head covering today. And then we'll talk about communion in a couple of weeks. And then we'll talk about spiritual gifts and the practice of spiritual gifts. And all of these things were being misused to a point of harming worship in the body. But Paul starts with a commendation before coming to the correction. But then in verse 3, he gives the, the overriding principle that really is is the theme for the whole passage, that if we understand verse 3, it helps us understand the rest of the passage. It says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. He's saying everyone has a head over them, other than God the Father. Everyone has someone in authority over them, a hierarchy over them. And we need to realize who that is and live in light of that. God has ordained headship in the order of things. Without leadership, without an order to things, there is chaos. Things fall apart. And God has ordained that. And so He's giving them those foundational principles here. Now throughout this text, there is debate on almost every other word, it seems like, of what it means. And one of those debates is, what does head mean? And I'm not going to try to give you a complete theological excursus on every one of those this morning. We'd be here until midnight. But I'll try to give you at least some of the options and, and where I would come down on that. With head, head, the word for head, kephale, was generally used of either the physical head with the brain and the eyes, speaking of giving direction to the body, or metaphorically, it was speaking of someone in leadership or in hierarchy over someone else. It gave priority in function and in leadership. That person was responsible for someone else. Now, some have argued that 
Head here could mean source, much like the headwaters of a river. There's some challenges to that. One of them is it's never used that way elsewhere in Scripture. And it's rarely used that way in any other extra-biblical extra support. And so the, the idea that it means source is an attempt to, to really get away from clear biblical teaching of, of an order to things. And they're, they're trying to disrupt the order. And so we can't hold to that understanding what the word means and understanding Scripture and the rest of Scripture. It is referring to leadership and a responsibility. Now, now a couple of things here, because head over has been one of those misused and abused terms in the church throughout history. It's been used by husbands to, to subjugate their wives, to dominate over their wives. It's been used by church leaders to force people to fall into line. But head here refers to the responsibility of loving leadership. It is not domination. It's the responsibility of loving leadership. Headship, a couple of other things. Headship here does not mean better or higher value, but it means different roles. So it's, it's equality in value, difference in roles and purpose. Understanding this text as well, headship also meant a responsibility to give honor to someone that was a head over you. That was a, a spiritual leader over you or a leader. And so Paul in this verse gives three different relationships. And those relationships help us understand the other relationship. The first, he says, is every man has a head and that head is Jesus Christ. We know from Ephesians chapter 5 that, or 4 that Christ is the head of the church in a number of other passages. He's the leader of the church. And so Paul starts with that relationship. And, and if you think about it in Ephesians, how did Christ head the church. He died for the church. He gave his life to save the church. He loves the church. He gives leadership to the church. So Paul starts with the head of every man is Christ, a reminder to men we have an authority over us. It is not just us and we get to do what we want. And then the second relationship is the relationship he's dealing with with head coverings. And again, remember, he's dealing with a specific issue. So he's not trying to pick on, on women throughout this passage, but he's dealing with head coverings that, that women were wearing. But here he said the head of a wife is her husband. This comes back to there is a distinction between genders, and that's a wonderful, good thing. But keep in mind like the head of every man is Christ, and like the next one, the head of Christ is God, there's a loving equality within the roles of leadership. The context is love. And so he's reminding the women that their husbands have been given to them to shoulder the responsibility and burden of leadership. And their response is to honor that. There's some debate of... of what words to use for men and women here. The challenges in Greek, it's the same word for men and husband and the same word for woman and wife. And it's completely up to context to figure out what is being referred to here. I would, I would say that probably the ESV has it right that he's talking husband and wife here, but he could be talking men and women um, in, in general. 
because the husband and wife relationship informs all other relationships in the church. And so it sets an, a model or an example. So that's just another uh, thing that you can, your translations might say differently that you can dig into. But the third relationship is really, really key in understanding it, and it's why Paul put it in there, is to prevent abuse of this principle. The head of Christ is God. Now, is Jesus Christ God? Yes. The, the answer is yes. That, that's part of our, our theological statement. The Trini- in the Trinity, you have God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit, all of which are co-equal and identical in essence. They are the very being of God. But biblically, we have different roles within that Trinity. And we see phrases that, that show Jesus was under the headship or under the authority of God the Father. The Garden of Gethsemane, what does he say? Father, not my will, but yours be done. Is he any less God by saying that? No, but he's honoring the roles that God has set up, that God the Father. And, and so a couple verses that help us understand that. 1 Corinthians 15.28 When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be suggested, subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Lots of subjections there. That God may be all in all. Jesus Himself in John 14, 28, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And so a verse like that helps us try to figure out what He means here. In role, in leadership, Jesus says the Father is greater than I. But they are both equally God. In fact, in John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So he affirms both sides of a balance here. And I think Paul puts us in there to help men and women understand that it's a difference in roles, not not in personhood, not in value, not in worth. But Paul's foundational principle that he starts with is that everyone has a head. And God has set up those headship roles overall, and we need to identify them and honor those. Then from here, he gets into sort of the nuts and bolts of, of, of headship and um, putting a, a covering over the head. And Paul's using a play on words here because he'll use head to refer to cover your head so you don't embarrass your head or d- that you don't dishonor your head. And he's using cover your physical head here so you don't bring dishonor to the spiritual head over you that God has placed over you. And so in verse 4, we see every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. And we just dig into it here, don't we? Wait into, okay, what does all this stuff mean? So a couple things, and I'll, I'll try to just be quick. The first is every man who prays or prophesies, and then every woman, wife who prays or prophesies. The actions of prayer and prophesying here are public actions in the public assembling of the saints. It's part of the worship service. And so he's saying every man that prays out loud in the worship service, every woman that prays out loud in the worship service should do this. 
Prophesying is not a word we use often, right? When we think prophesying, what do we think? Future things. The Dodgers are going to win the World Series this year. That's a prophecy, right? That's what we think of a prophecy. And some of you are like, I don't believe you're a prophet because the angels are going to win the World Series. And we all know Boston isn't. So that, no, no, just <laughs> But that's what we think of when we think of prophecy. And, and that's an element of Old Testament prophecy that actually is not what's referred to as prophecy here. Prophecy can mean the foretelling of God's Word, but it more often means the forthtelling of God's Word. It means taking God's words and applying it to everyday life, usually in a bold black and white way. And so uh, a number of people have equated preaching as a type of prophesying that would have been referred to here as an understanding of this word. Um, a couple of, of guys that have written on it, um, Greg Bloomberg said, exhorting God's people about His will from Scripture for their particular circumstances. Or God leading a preacher to give a certain message to God's people. It's important to understand when prophecy is used in this way, prophecy is not on par with Scripture. When I stand here and say, this is God's Word for this church, we need to apply it, I am not speaking Scripture today. So New Testament prophecies are applying Scripture to life. I, I love this definition from Hill. Christian prophets are those who have grasped the meaning of Scripture, perceived its powerful relevance to the life of the individual, the church and society, and declare that message fearlessly. And so we see here, and prophecy can happen from the pulpit, it can happen one-on-one or, or applying God's Word to life. We see here a congregation that probably at some point in their worship, they had opportunities for people to pray, much like we did this morning, but then there was also opportunities for people to exhort one another from God's Word. And that would have been called prophecy. One author said, prayer is talking to God about people and prophesying is talking to people about God. It doesn't cover the whole of the, each definition, but I think it's a helpful handle to understand. So, okay, so prayers and prophecies, participating in the worship service of the time. Head covering. There's all kinds of debate of what head covering is. And like, like I said, we're sort of digging into culture and historical background this morning, and we have to, to understand the text. There's three major views of what head covering might be. The first is more like you'd see in the Arab world today, and it's still practiced today, and that's of a veil. And so some uh, um, scholars, as you read, will talk about veils as they talk about this passage, that women should have their face and head covered. And you've seen that, right, with the burqas and some of the other uh, dress today. That's what some people think it's talking about. Second option is just something covering the head. And so it didn't necessarily cover the face, and there was a couple ways they do it. Ladies would sometimes have a prayer shawl that they would bring and cover their head. Or they would take their, their robes, their togas, and there would be excess material there, and they would take part of that material and cover their head with it. In fact, I have a picture, a statue, if we can put that up, um, of Alexander, and it shows him wearing his toga as a head covering. And so do you see how he took the, the fold of the, the material and put it over his head? And so that is sometimes referred to as head covering. Other people, thank you, you can move on or put back up the other slide. 
Other people feel head covering is your hair, as a, as a lady, your long hair bundled up on your head. And so they would put it in braids and put it in a bun, and that would be covering your head. Letting it down loose and flowing would be uncovering your head and would be disgraceful in public. Out of those, and those are the, the three real options that we have for this. Out of those, it's probably either two or three. I'm going to go with two because there's enough, uh, enough evidence and pictures of things that people used material as a head covering, as well as the wording in this text about taking something and covering really points us to that it's an external item over the hair. These are not stands that I would die for. I'll just tell you that up front because it could be number three as well. But um, we just don't know because none of us have been to an, a first century church. If you have, let me know. We'll talk. I'd like to know some things. But we, we haven't been there, and so we're trying 2,000 years later to understand what they're talking about. But the, the wording of covered and uncovered, the culture, the context really looks like it's a, a piece of material over the head. This material was something that they would often use in religious ceremonies. And we'll get to that, how it was used differently for men and women. One author said, In Corinthian society, male head coverings dishonored God, and female head coverings honored husbands. Therefore, wives were to wear head coverings in worship, and men were not to wear head coverings in worship. And so they were to wear whatever would honor their figurative or symbolic head. You were responsible to the person above you in the hierarchy, to your head. And so you should dress in an an appropriate fashion to to respect them. So then we get into... um, So that makes sense on the head covering, where where I'm going with that. So we get into, okay, what does he mean by head coverings? And and the first is verse 4. Men were to honor Christ as their head by not wearing head coverings to worship. They were to openly reflect God's glory. Now, culture helps us understand here because it was commonplace for priests in a cult to wear head coverings during a cultic ceremony. Some have felt they did that during a sacrifice because that helped cover the noise of the animals they were killing. Not not to get real gross, but that tells you a little bit of culture and what was happening. And so as they did that, the priests were honored. And remember, the the church, the Corinth had a hierarchical, hierarchical, ah, that word, society where there was elite and there was commonplace and there was lower class. The, the priests were considered elite. And so the elite men of the city often started wearing their togas like that, as we saw in that statue, to show just how big of a deal they were, to show their place. And so really, for a man to cover his head, it drew attention to their place in society rather than to God. The other thing was, culturally, almost all women covered their head in public. And so for a man to cover his head, it was considered effeminate. It was, sometimes the, the homosexual men would do that to, to show that they were different. Does that make more sense when he says, men, don't cover your heads in worship? It's dishonoring to God. Because really what they're doing is copying pagan practices and copying women. It was a sign of disrespect. Don't look like pagans. And we want to come before God in respect. In honor to Him. You know, if I was to 
to wear this as I came and preached today. I thought of just really dressing in an odd way. I got some advice that maybe that would be too distracting. But if I was to come up and preach like this. What? I don't think I want to know what somebody said. (laughs) What are your thoughts? What were your thoughts? I can't can't hear with that thing on. (laughs) Is it distracting? Would you hear anything I said through the sermon? No, maybe eventually you'd get used to it, but it would be weird. My daughter saw it out this morning, and she goes, Dad, you're not going to preach in that, are you? <laughs> like, well, I am going to put it on. She goes, why? And I tried to ask her, well, why would it bother you? She's like, it's just not right. And so some of the things we wear or do can be distracting. Now, now you're not, if I wear that, you're not going to think of me as a priest that is killing animals or effeminate. You're, you may think of me as trying to be 15 again or something. I don't know what it is. Um, But it will distract because it is not honoring to God and worship. We are here to bring glory to God. Anything that distracts from bringing glory to God is a problem. So here Paul says, men, don't do it. Don't wear head coverings. In 5 and 6, he goes on, and for the ladies, he said, you should wear head coverings. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head or her husband, the person above her, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. And and again, we have to understand some things here. A, A head covering represented a lot in their culture. One of the things it represented is that you were submissive to the leadership that was over you. And so to remove a head covering says, I am not going to respect the authority that is over me. That would be a problem. But more than that, in their culture, and this is where it's really hard for us to understand, long flowing hair on a woman was considered very sensual. It was as sexual as exposing part of your body to the men. And and that's something we don't understand. But so what they would do is they would cover their heads if they were married to preserve their beauty, to preserve who they were for their husbands. Because it would cause men to lust and to stumble. And so really to wear a head covering when you were married was like wearing a sign that said, I'm taken. I'm taken. Don't look. And what do we have today that represents that? Wedding ring. I am amazed at how some of you can spot a wedding ring from two miles away. And you know that person's married or that person's not married. It's a symbol that says, I'm taken. Back off. I am Susie's husband, period. And so that's part of what the head covering did for women. To, to go with uncovered heads was to be immodest. Usually if, you, if a woman was walking in public with a, a, her head uncovered, it meant that she was either a high-class mistress or a temple prostitute. Other than little girls who, who weren't ready for marriage yet. So to uncover your head said, I'm available for whatever you would like. We don't understand that with hair. But it might be similar to if if ladies, if you walked in here in a skimpy bathing suit. For us, we'd be like, don't do that. That's what uncovering their head in, in a public gathering meant for them. It invited male attention. In fact, rabbis warned that women uncovering their head could lead to a man's seduction. She was offering innuendos of attraction. 
one author said. So uncovered, in summary, uncovered women were unmarried, and if they were not little girls, quite possibly they were available to be sexual companions. Now, understanding that, if a woman was to come into a public worship service and say, we are equal in Christ and uncover her head, could that be distracting? Absolutely. And, and so, again, we're not teaching this morning that we're, we're, all you ladies need to come next week with head coverings. But we're understanding why Paul is instructing this way and then applying those principles. It was a shame, and it was a shame on your husband to uncover your head. In fact, Paul in verse 5 said it's the same as if her head were shaven. And one of the customs of the time that was somewhat practiced, they didn't necessarily consistently practice all these, is if a woman was caught, caught in adultery, her head was shaven as a symbol of her sin and what she had done. And so that gives you an idea of, of what Paul is equating uncovering the head to. And that can happen today. It's not just immodest clothes, but actions and, and attitudes and things that are this come-hither flirting that might happen at church or wherever. It, it, Paul's saying, not in worship. It's not appropriate. We are here to glorify God. And women, he says, do that by honoring your husbands. Don't embarrass them in front of everyone. Then in verse, in verse 6, he basically says, you might as well cut your hair off if you're going to uncover your head. You might as well cut it short or cut it off because it's that disgraceful. Again, in 2015, we may not understand why hair showing would be disgraceful. For those that, that feel it's not a, a shawl, but it's, it's the, the putting hair up on the head, they again would agree with this and say letting your hair loose and flowing was uncovering, and that was a problem. So again, that's the culture that we're dealing with. Verses 7 through 10 are challenging. I, I wrote, act in a way that honors and brings glory to authority over you. And Paul here uses the, the creation account and he, he uses some things that the, the church at Corinth would understand and we have to sort of unpack and say, okay, what's he saying here? This doesn't make sense. But he says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Let's just say right up front, he is not saying that women are not in, made in the image of God. He knows Genesis. He knows that God made man in his image. Male and female, he created them. His focus isn't on image. His focus is on glory. And the idea of glory, as we've talked about last week, about giving glory to God, is to add to someone's reputation, to honor them, to not disgrace them. Paul here is saying there's an order to things, and how we act honors the head that is over us, or dishonors. And so he says, men... You were created first, and as such, your, your purpose was to give glory to God and, be, and to do God's work here in the creative order. And he says, women, you were created second, and your purpose of creation was to help man in that task. And so God has given man that task, but it was not good that he would be alone. Couldn't do it on his own. Sorry, men, but we, we need our wives, or we need other ladies. And, and so he provides Eve to come alongside and fill in those gaps... And so Eve's primary responsibility was to come alongside Adam and be a helpmate to him with the task that God had given Adam, and so through Adam, the task that God had given both of them. 
And that's the, the imagery that Paul is, is drawing on here with words that are hard for us to understand. But he's saying a man ought not to cover his head. He is the image and glory of God for some of those reasons we talked about. But woman is the glory of man. She is to honor man. She's also to honor God, but she does that by honoring her husband. If she dishonors her husband, who God has created her to support and to help and to, to be a, a, a partner with, then she's also dishonoring God. But Paul here is referring to the immediate head over that person. And basically saying how you deal with authority over you ultimately reflects on the glory of God. And so he's not putting down women here. In fact, as we, we look through some of the observations, he's actually um, affirming women in, in several parts of this passage. But he's, he's appealing to the logic of creation. He says man has a, a responsibility, a task. He has to answer to God whether or not he does this. And he says, ladies, you have to answer to God whether or not you support your husbands in that whether you're partnering with your husband in that. That makes sense? Again, we, we, we could take a lot of time to unpack this a little bit more. But really, all seven through nine, all are that argument. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for women, but woman for man. And again, he's not, he's not saying that in a sense of women are just men's little, little play toys and, and for whatever men want. That's not what he's saying as he's going to balance out in 11 and 12. But he's, he's talking about the roles that God created each to do. Roles that we should embrace. Roles that are hard at times for either gender. But roles that work in a way that glorifies God. I want to jump down to 10 because we're running out of time. Verse 10 is another one that has confused a lot of people. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head. He's summarizing and he's saying all of these things so far, the order of creation, the order God has set up, the appropriateness in culture, all of these are why wives wear head covering. And then he has this phrase, because of the angels. So would someone like to explain what that one means? Uh, Got to tell you, there's so many opinions of what that means. Some have felt that maybe it's fallen angels and they would be tempted to lust after the long flowing hair. Uh, I think that's a little bit of a stretch in this context because angels here is used, and the word that's used here is usually in the positive context. And so really it looks like it's the concept that as we worship, we have a supernatural audience. We have angels this morning that listen to us sing. That hear God's word preached and watch how we respond to it. We know from Hebrews that God has sent angels to minister to believers and to assist believers. And so Paul is, I think Paul is reminding them, you have a heavenly audience. So don't cause the heavenly audience to, to, to stumble. The angels were there at creation as well. They saw this created order. And so let's embrace it. Sort of the summary of those verses. Men, don't look like pagans or women. Focus on God. Don't come to church in a dress. Women, dress respectfully without giving sexual signals. Honor your husband and don't look like men. Men should dress and behave like women. Like men, sorry. Men should dress and behave like men. Women should dress and behave like women. Don't take just that quote this morning. 
couple of other verses we want to work through and then, then talk through some of the, the applications. Verse 11, and here, point number three, but remember, men and women are equal before God and need each other. This is the balance, and, and these things are held in tension, and, and where the problem is is when someone holds to one and not the other. And so people that view men and women as completely equal and don't hold to the roles God has created, the, the headship that God has created, those are egalitarian, and, and go off into, I think, some heretical views. Those that don't see men and women as equal and just hold that, that men are, are leading and, and subjugating women, that is contrary to Scripture as well. And so Paul here gives us the balance. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of women. That would have been huge to say. That would have been culturally, wow. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of women. It's reminding them of just some, some lessons. And all things are from God. So where he's bringing them back is, you're equal in worth, and you all answer to God. Ultimately, he is the head over all of us. We need each other. Husband and wives, you're working together for a common purpose. This keeps it from being an inferior or superior situation. There's interdependence as God has created male and female within the order He has created. Our Constitution does a wonderful job of just capturing that, and I put that in your notes. We believe that there is a created order between man and woman. This is our church's Constitution. We believe that there is a created order between man and woman. The man was created first and then woman from the man. The woman was created as a helper for the man. The biblical order concerns functions and roles, not superiority and inferiority. We believe that there is an absolute equality of man and women before God. That pretty much summarizes the text today, as Paul is sharing. Finally, verses 13 through 16, consider what is proper Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Culturally, it was improper. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, because it was part of her beauty. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And he appeals to nature. There's all kinds of debate over what that is. Because last I checked, babies are all born with almost no hair. A few have a lot of hair, right? (laughs) Um, But what he's referring to is not how people are born. And he's not referring to the animal kingdom where sometimes the the male animals have more hair. He's he's referring to the, the natural order of things that has come up in culture. In cultures throughout history, women have worn longer hair than men. And he's, he's appealing to that as a logical argument. This was a challenge for them. I mean, one of the things that made this a challenge that I didn't mention is women were not expected to wear head coverings in their own homes. And that was a place that they could take off the head covering and just be themselves because they were with their family. Where did most churches meet early on? In homes. And so I think we have to be careful not to come down on the Corinthians too hard on this because these are house churches meeting in homes. What do you do? Part of our culture says I can take off my head covering, but another part says I should keep it on. And so Paul's giving some really practical instructions here. 
So all of that, I, I hope we've waded through the text. But how do we apply this without having to pass out head coverings? And, and we apply it by looking at some of the principles that are underlying the instructions here. And I think I've given seven or eight there that we'll go through quickly. The created distinction, the first one, the created distinction between men and women should be honored in the church. Paul appeals to creation, which predates the fall. Some have said that all of that's just because of sin. No, he's appealing to creation. He created an order to things. He created differences between men and women. Neither is better. We need men to be men and women to be women. Especially in a culture that can't figure out what that means. What a difference it is when we celebrate gender distinctions. When we celebrate the roles that God has given. Sometimes I hear my wife talking to other other ladies not in the church and she said, I just love being a mom and raising my kids. And I'm not saying all moms have to do it, but that's that's something that she loves and embraces. And and sometimes some some women outside the church have said, wow, wow, you're so oppressed. How, How could you do that? Interestingly enough, more and more women now say, oh, I wish I could do that. That's the longing of my heart. Because it's part of the role and part of what God has created her to do. We need to appreciate those distinctions. Not try to wipe them out. But to honor them in a way that brings honor to both. Which is the second point. We must fight against any attempts to put down men or women as inferior or less of a child of God. We are equal co-heirs before God. Difference does not mean inequality or inferiority. Either direction. And I've seen that pendulum swing on both sides. Against men, against women. We must fight to say we are co-heirs in Christ even though we have different responsibilities. Third application. Men, let me talk to you for a minute. Reflect Christ's headship to your wife and family in how you lead and how you worship. Reflect Christ's headship. He is your head. Reflect that to your wife and family in how you lead, lead like Christ, humble servant leadership, and in how you worship. In this text, the the admonition to men is worship openly before God. Worship giving glory to God. Set that example. And so a, a couple of things out of that. Number one, men, remember you're under authority. A man that can't come under authority well will never lead his family well. Guaranteed. He will usually become either one that refuses to lead or a tyrant. So men, are you servant leaders? Are you humble? Are you doing all things for the benefit of your family? To help them grow? Be spiritual leaders, men. Know the Word of God. Read it. Help apply it to the family. If we're to understand the responsibilities God has given, we need to embrace that. And finally, I would challenge you, come unveiled to worship. I know that's using symbolism from the text. The men worship worship with strength. I love it when I when some of the songs I hear mostly men singing, man that does something for my heart. Because it's a sign of leadership and of saying we and my I and my family will follow God.
how you worship reflects on whether you bring glory to God. Women. Next point there in application. Take your calling to be under the headship of your husband seriously and supportively. Honor him. Don't embarrass him. Respond to his spiritual leadership. Support him in ministry of the church. Find ways to help him be able to be in ministries in the church. Not that you shouldn't have your own ministries as well. But if you can find ministries together, that's even better. One pastor was talking about, about preaching at a, as a guest preacher. And he's in the middle of his sermon. And he makes a fairly innocent application. He says we should all be careful um, to be patient with one another. Suddenly a woman in the congregation jumped up and shouted, Don't tell me that until you've told my husband to get a job. Don't do that. That's dishonoring to the head that God has placed over. Should he get a job? Probably. But God says, men reflect Christ. Women, take your responsibility to be under the headship of your husband seriously. Fifth point there. Our attitude towards authority affects our worship and the worship of others in the body. This is a general principle from the headship idea. So getting away from men and women in general, our attitude towards authority directly affects our ability to worship. How do we view authority over us at work? How do we view authority in the church? How do we view any authority over us? How do we treat government authority? And the more we fight and, and are sarcastic and rail against that, the more we are dishonoring to God because we are, are challenging the structures, the order that he has put into place. Next one, strive to honor each other in worship. Avoid distracting others from God. Avoid distracting others from God. Try not to distract others in worship. In this case, it was head coverings. It may be something else, some other distraction in worship. (laughs) Should I just say it? Cell phones going on? No. (laughs) But one of the principles here is be concerned about not keeping other people from worshiping. Women, when they took their head coverings off, they were a distraction. We may not understand it because hair is hair. But for them, it was a distraction. So what distracts each other here? It means thinking of others above ourselves. Two last ones, and we'll close. This is a really important one. Women can and did participate in the worship service in appropriate ways. Did you catch verse 5? Significant. What does Paul say the women were doing? Praying and prophesying. They were participating in the worship service with the men. Does he tell them not to? No. What does he tell them? This is how you do it in an appropriate way. And, and so one of the things that we glean from this and, and looking at other scripture is women were allowed and encouraged to participate in the worship service. And, you know, I praise God that we have men and women here and men and women can pray and, and we can share testimonies and encourage each other with God's word. 
And so we, we should never use the roles and distinctions to keep women from participating in the spiritual life of a congregation. And we know there's guidelines to that. In 1 Timothy 2, we've talked about that God says that women should not be elders and pastors and they should not be in a place of authority over men, a teaching place over men. But in this case, this is the body ministering to each other. And it's affirmed by Paul. And the last one there says, avoid things that convey sexual misconduct, looseness, or marital promiscuity. Watch what you wear, what you say, and what you do. Now there's a reasonableness here. Is the action really sexually uh, an item of sexual misconduct? Is there really an attempt to, to bring others down? But it's, it says, be careful. This goes into the modesty issue that we've talked about. And saying, ladies, be careful. I would encourage the men to be careful, to make sure you don't come, young men that are single, don't come to church just looking for a wife. If you find one here, great. Praise God. That's awesome. But when we're in the worship service, we're here to worship God. And so it's a call to be pure and to not let anything get in the way of that purity. Head coverings. The title of the sermon was What Do Hats and Razors? Hats being a, a modern head covering and razors have to do with worship. Not much. Because it's more about appropriate behavior to, to the roles God has created to not distract each other from worship, to honor God in everything we do. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray that we would be people of worship. Lord, people that honor You by honoring each other. Lord, I pray for the men in this congregation that they would, would rise to the occasion and continue to be men. Lord, I respect so many men of God that are sitting in this room that have chosen to lead their families, that have chosen to worship, that have chosen to be unveiled and open in their love for God and in bringing glory to God. I pray that more men would follow that, that our young men would see that example and say, I will lead well as Christ leads. Lord, I pray for our women and I praise you for their participation and valuable contributions in our, in our worship, in our, our service here, in our ministries. Lord, I pray that you would help them as they figure out how in everyday life to, to put these roles into practice, to be supportive, to be encouraging of their husbands, to be helping him give glory to you and to be giving glory to you themselves. Lord, help them to be lighthouses and beacons in a world that has no clue what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that in all we do and in all of our, our horizontal relationships, hold those in such a way to give glory to you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.